You voted on our Instagram for which case you wanted to hear next, and of course, we delivered. This case consists of inspiration from an old movie, a 13-year-old waiting on the phone for the other line to be free, and it all comes down to being cracked open by testimony about an air conditioner. We are talking about the murder of Ellen Sherman. We are your hosts, Helen Allen and Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Sherman lived in Niantic, Connecticut for all of 16 years of their marriage. Ed taught business at Three Rivers Community College and was a member of Mensa, which is an organization for people with exceptionally high IQs. Okay, sure. I know. I I literally had to look it up because I was like, what the hell is that? Because I clearly don't fit in with people like that. I'm like, who, me? A commoner? I'm I'm just a common folk. (laughs) No, so... Yeah, he was a part of this group. He was a professor at this college. Um, And Ellen, his wife, was five and a half months pregnant. And she worked in the family publishing business. So they owned this, like, very cool publishing business. Um, They both had a daughter named Jessica Sherman, who was 12 years old at the time. On Friday night in August of 1985, Ed left for a sailing trip with his four friends. So a lot of the stuff that I'm getting from this, uh, for this episode is from an episode of Forensic Files. Okay. Um, In that there's a lot of like friend testimonies and stuff. So Wayne LeBrun is one of Ed's friends that went on the sailing trip with him. Gotcha. And he's like describing the trip and he's like, they're always fun and we always have a good time. That's great sailing from Maine down. We stop at the vineyard in Nantucket, what have you. Boys night out type thing. So so totally relatable to us and what yeah, we do on the weekend. Picture the bougiest, like, all guys trip that you can yeah. picture. Like, it's, they're going through the luxurious beach towns. They're sailing. They're drinking. drinking probably. They're hanging out with friends. Yeah. Gotcha. <clears throat> on Sunday afternoon, two days into the trip, Ed called Ellen and gets no answer. He calls back several more times and still is not getting an answer. So he calls his close family friend, Len Fredrickson, to go check on Ellen. He did call a lot of times, which could be considered suspicious. Like when I first heard that he was calling a bunch of times, I was like, can you chill? Like if, yeah, could I mean, you imagine like being his wife and then like, and I don't know, like, cause part of me is like, I would get paranoid if I was like, away and the person that I knew was like home by themselves wasn't answering but at the same time I was a little like what the heck why is he calling so many times so I looked into like if they ever really asked him about that like I guess he had told police because I think that they also thought this was sketchy and police had said like supposedly he had a favor to ask her so that's why he was kind of hounding her he forgot Uh to turn off a boat battery and he wanted her to do it I don't okay, really know weird. what that means. So do we know if these calls all came within like a couple of hours? Like it seems pretty quick to go from I called her like a bunch of times and then, hey, family friend, go check on her. Like I'd be yeah. so pissed if I was his wife. There's not a clear timeline that I got, 
But basically all Sunday afternoon he had been like checking in. And then I think after a few calls he was just like, you know what, I'm just going to go have someone go check on her. Huh. And like the person that does go and check on that, Len, he is a close family friend. So like it wasn't okay. considered like invasive or anything. Yeah. So Len got over to the house when it was like just about getting dark. And he notes that, like, he could hear the air conditioning unit running. So, like, he knew that there must have been somebody in the house recently because they just, like, wouldn't have left it on. Yeah. Um, and the lights were on inside and outside the house. Okay, so someone's definitely home. Right. But he notes all the doors were locked up. Which was strange in their specific case because they always left their house open. He said even huh. that he, like, used to kid with Ellen about how that fact that, like, she was just going to come home and there was going to be nothing left in their house. I thought that was kind of interesting, but it is something that I guess was normal for them, so he noticed that right away. Okay. Um, he knocks on the door, waits a few minutes, knocks again, and no one's answering. So, he enters the home through an unlocked window. Which, yeah, at first I'm like, okay, that's bold. Like, yeah. Because I don't know. Like, putting myself in his shoes, would I really... If I see all the lights are on and stuff, I think I would be like, oh, she's home. And yeah. And then call the husband and be like, all's good. Yeah, lights are on, AC's running, it's good. She's <laughs> cozied up with a movie, it sounds yeah. like. Like... I don't know. So, you know, maybe the husband, maybe he sounded frantic on the phone and he was like, I really need to go in yeah, and confirm or it something. It must have just been like a combination of the fact that like he had been called over to go there. Cause like I feel like also it would heighten like your suspicions if you're like being called to check on yeah. someone versus just like if you went to the house, no one answered, you'd be like, oh, maybe she's like taking a shower. But like the fact that he was called to check on her and apparently she's not answering her phone for hours now. Yeah. Yeah, I do get why he And he probably feel. saw the doors were locked and was like, oh, this is another suspicion. For real? So he just jumps through the window, I guess. Okay. Um, and he noticed, the, he noticed the family dog was inside. He calls for Ellen, but no one answers. So he goes upstairs and he opens the bedroom door only to find Ellen laying on the bed lifeless he even like notes he said like i had no idea what happened like i genuinely didn't even think this was a murder because like why would anyone murder this wonderful person so clearly len like really likes her yeah and he is very distraught by all of this but yeah he does make it a point to think like when he first walked into that room like he just thought like maybe she died of something else like he never would have thought it was murder then he eventually calls the police I know uh, a few different sources say that it's him that calls the police right away. One source said that, like, he called his wife first and then had his wife call the police, which is, is like, bizarre, but I couldn't really find anything saying one or the other for fact, so not really sure how that played out. But eventually the police come and they investigate this scene. Um, Detective Michael Malchick is retired from the Connecticut State Police now. Um, but he noted that it appeared to be a sexual assault. Really? Her night clothing was on the floor and her underwear and the bedding, it like all over the floor and stuff. So they look at that and she's like nude on the bed. What else would you think? You know yeah. what I mean? So 
at this point, they're looking at this like it was like a sexual assault gone wrong. They note that there are red ligature marks around her neck, indicating that there was a strangulation. Um, Dr. Henry Lee, who we will get into him a little bit later, but he is a world-renowned forensic scientist that he's very well-known. We'll talk um, about him after. I know you so know him. So he's famous, yeah. Yeah, he's like yeah, a celebrity in our neck of the woods. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, he notes that there are lines on her fingernails, um, which was like evidence lines? that her, like, almost like crease lines. That was like evidence that her fingers were like, bent, her fingernails were like bent backwards. Oh. So he's like thinking that that was like a struggle of her trying to like grab at the person strangling her and like maybe her fingernails dug so far into him that they like kind of bent backwards as she was like grabbing him or her based on rigor mortis which basically is like the temporary stiffening of the body after death the medical examiner determined that the murder happened sometime saturday night or early sunday morning um rigor mortis for those of you who don't know is just like one of the things that they are able to um determine the time of death because your body stiffens like a certain way only a certain amount of time after dying. So it's, you know, it's just one of the methods to figure out the timeline. Um, police found no signs of forced entry, no missing valuables, so they were able to rule out robbery basically right away. Um, God, I'm so... My mind's running wild. I'm like, okay, there's no signs of forced entry. My mind immediately goes to, okay, maybe it's someone she knows. Yeah, definitely. Maybe someone locked up after they left. Someone who would have well, known that she had the doors the thing. open. Like, how do you lock the doors from inside if you don't have the keys? Like, that's yeah. what I was immediately thinking is that, like, either she locked the doors and was alive and then laid on the bed and died or, like, the killer locked it, which yeah. we don't know. Maybe the killer found the house keys when he was in there or when she was in there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah, like you said, it's likely that it is someone that they know. Yeah. So um, using a ship to shore radio, a policeman gave Ed the bad news. Um, Wayne, the friend who was there on the sailing trip with him, yeah. said he talked to him for a while, which... Uh, Wayne said he, I don't know, he makes a point to be like, I wasn't listening. Um, and he eventually did give the phone to Wayne and told Wayne, like, hey, take this. It's the police. They said that Ellen had been killed. At this point, everything is a little bit, you know, chaotic. Rocky. Nobody really knows what to do. No one knows who to point at. You know, it's just all over the place. Exactly. Chaos. So now let's get into the investigation. Oh, I'm ready. Detective Mike Malchik soon learned that the Shermans' lives were far from ordinary. Oh um, my, of course. I know. All right. Don't you love So, the is twist? there an affair? What's going on? Oh, you don't know the half of <laughs> okay. it. Ed Sherman told investigators that he last spoke with his wife on Friday night from his friend's house. His friends say that he did get on the phone and was telling his wife to go to the bank and make some deposit, which, like, I don't know what that's about. They never go into it further. So I'm like, what? <laughs> like, if I What were... a random call. Yeah. And like, I... whatever. I'm not even getting into it because that's a, a rabbit hole for me. But <laughs> Ed was like unusually candid about his sex life with the police. 
I was watching this like piece of the interrogation. Um, so the guy interrogating him asks, if you had to describe your marriage, what type of marriage would you say you had? And Ed's like, unusual. Oh. <laughs> and okay. the guy's like, okay, in what sense? And he goes, I've been having an affair with another woman for a number of years, and Ellen had been ex- accepting of it up until relatively recently. I'm gobsmacked. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just like what. So, also, why is he trying to be so like? Tee can't tell anyone. Uh, it's so unusual. Weird. Unusual. So, the woman he had been having an affair with was Nancy Prescott, who was a coworker of Ed's. So oh. remember that he is a professor at this community yeah. college. So for geniuses, she works there too. Yeah, she was said to have been very different than Ellen. Um, this is quotes from Len, the friend who who is went the inside one who the house. Her body. Yeah. yeah. So Len said, "Quote: She was very different than Ellen. Ellen used to refer to her as Ed's Valley Girl. She was blonde and very different looking than Ellen. Ed wanted an open relationship." And he encouraged Ellen to have affairs. Which already I'm like, let's unpack. Yeah, because (laughs) I, I don't know. I don't really know. I didn't know Ellen personally, but was she okay with it in any sense? Yeah, so we'll definitely get into that. But my thing about this is I'm like... Len is really going to bat for Ellen. Like Loyal. The way that he's like... She was blonde and very different looking than Ellen. He's like making a point to be like, she's different than Ellen. I don't know. That energy is weird to me, but. Oh, that could also be seen as suspicious too. Right? Like, I don't know. I'm not totally letting Len off the hook here. He's either really loyal or really (laughs) Really sus. sus. (laughs) But he, he goes on to say, I remember being at a New Year's Eve party at their house. I believe it was 1984. They had several couples there. And I guess they were going to swap partners. I was with a young lady and Ed asked me if I was interested. And if I'd asked the young lady that I was with if she was interested. And I just said, look, we'll leave. And we did. Ed was really the one that was pushing that type of situation. Ellen did not want that in her life. Okay. So from what we know, she was not into it. Maybe just going along with it for Ed. As far as we know here, she's not really like... I mean, she's a consenting party, but she's not an excited party. Okay. You know? Um, Wayne, the friend from the sailing trip, makes a point to say, I was totally unsuspected of and would not have guessed it. Like... Uh, I don't know if I buy that completely. I don't know if I buy it either. Because it's like, this guy's having literal parties, and I know how Niantic, Connecticut is. I know how anywhere (laughs) in Connecticut is. People talk. Mm Mm-hmm. You're his best friend that goes on sailing trips with him, and you had no idea he was a freak in the sheets like, like that. I don't. You know for sure. It. You were at the party. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Wayne. Sure. You sent out the invites. We know. Yeah. Sure, Wayne. <laughs> sure. Since there were no signs of forced entry and no signs of ransack or violent struggles, everything in the house was in proper order. Police, like you, suspected mm-hmm. that Ellen must have known her killer. Of course. So let's talk about Dr. Henry Lee, who at the time was the director of Connecticut's crime lab. Um, he is the forensic scientist on this case. He is, like I said, a celebrity in forensics. Okay. He has worked on John Bonet Ramsey's case, Hella Crafts, O.J. Simpson, Lacey Peterson, the post 9-11 investigation, the Washington, D.C. sniper shootings, and he even reinvestigated the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
So he's a big, huge celebrity in our world. Just saying. He was called in to assist investigators. Originally, he looked at the ligature marks on Ellen's neck and found this, like, faint zigzag pattern. And initially, they just, like, didn't know where that came from. So he starts comparing it to clothing found at the scene, including Ellen's torn panties. When they stretched the panties out, you could see that the zigzag pattern is, like, from the, like, spandex that from, yeah. like, the top part. And other evidence, however, shows that Ellen had been strangled with bare hands. So he's like, what the... Why use both? Yeah, like, it just... Clearly, there's some kind of motive here. Also, there is a hemorrhage in the cricothyroid muscles bilaterally with an underlying fracture of the cricoid cartilage. And I know that doesn't sound like it makes any sense to you or me or anybody (laughs) who is not Dr. Henry Lee, but just trust the guy. Okay. Because this cannot be accomplished during ligature strangulation. So it's like you need to have like kind of more of like a hands-on pressured strangulation in order to like create that hemorrhage and that type of muscle or, like, to create mm-hmm. the fracture of the cartilage. Just, like, like more force than, like, a pair of underwear. It just like, exactly, like, a string okay. or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, Dr. Lee believes that the panties were wrapped around her neck after the killing to stage the crime scene to look like a sex crime. On the bedsheet, under UV light, was biological evidence that investigators hoped would ID the killer. They found... 150 to 250 individual semen stains, which that's a lot. (laughs) Like, so then they look into it further and the biological evidence was so badly degraded for DNA testing, which meant that the material had been there for quite some time and like had already been like laundered. So like kind of a dead end there because they're like, okay, none of these are from the night of the murder. None of them are fresh enough. Okay, so dead end. Yeah. So this is kind of them, like, ruling out the sex crime. Because it looks like it had just actually been a staged sex crime, not an actual one. While searching for suspects, obviously, they have to look into the mistress. Oh, of course. I'd I'd be on her front door like, hello. (laughs) Nancy, you got some explaining to do. (laughs) Yeah. So they're like, you know, Nancy Prescott may have been angry with Ed and Ellen because Ed had recently agreed to end the affair and save his marriage, supposedly. Hmm. That's what we are gathering now. So when Ellen got pregnant, apparently she asked him to end the affairs and commit to only her. Reasonable. Right, like, she's like, hello, I have a baby in my belly, we already have another kid, like, now's the time to step it up, if any. Like, yeah. you should have stepped it up before, but now it's, <laughs> now it's dire. Yeah. So, then, uh, during the interviews with the, um, or, so, during the interrogation, um, they ask him about, like, his relationship with Nancy, and he says, 
I terminated the relationship with this other woman. Terminated? I was know. this a contract? He's uh, he's literally such a lawyer when he I, speaks. It's I can so hear it. irritating because he's like, I terminated the relationship with this other woman. And they're like, just say Nancy. What's I wrong know. with you? Like, what? It's that being coy thing. Yeah. He's like, I terminated the relationship with this other woman. I was angry because I had to make a decision. And so I told Nancy, I can't handle it anymore. She kept asking me, why, 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 why? I just oh wrote a bunch God. of whys. I don't know how many she actually said. <laughs> um, but anyway, so my thing about this is I'm like, he's very like almost victim blaming here. Like he's like, really? like, I mean, right. Like if you're thinking about it in the sense that he's like, I terminated the relationship with the other woman. I was angry because I had to make a decision. And it's like, yeah, you shouldn't be cheating on your pregnant wife. Why are you acting like you yeah. deserve to be mad here? Like you're, you're like you deserve he's something. Like, oh out of God it? forbid! I have an extramarital affair. <laughs> it, like I just don't get what he's getting at here because it's almost like he's saying like, yeah, if Nancy did it, it's, well, it's not my fault. I was angry. So yeah, I no, it to. definitely sounds like that. It's now very that I'm weird. Hearing it back. So, detectives then had Ed take a polygraph, and the results were inconclusive. Then they look further into it, and Nancy actually ended up having an alibi for the weekend of the murder. So at this point, the case is kind of starting to turn cold. (laughs) Nancy, girl, I'm so sorry we knocked on your door like that. I know. They're like, oh, okay, bye, Nancy. Have a a good rest of your life. (laughs) So after Nancy's, like, not on their list anymore, what do they do? Well, like I said, at this point, the case starts to just kind of turn cold, and they're not really sure what to do and just mind you I'm this is getting a little ahead of things but it'll be five years before they actually have like a a solid answer to this case so when I'm saying the case turned cold like it was pretty nice (laughs) initially Ed was not considered a suspect because you know he was in the middle of the ocean and with four friends so they're literally like how could the have done that yeah like he just could not have done it and usually it's always the husband, but this rock solid alibi, Seems if I've ever solid. heard of one. Yeah, like they're, they, they kind of buy it. Like I said before, rigor mortis is one way to estimate the time of death. It's the stiffening of the entire body, and it lasts between 12 and 24 hours after death. When Ellen's body was discovered, it was in the final stages of rigor mortis and becoming more pliable. So that's how they thought, like, she was discovered on Sunday night. It must have happened Saturday night, like 24 hours before, yeah. or within 24 and 12 hours, so maybe Sunday morning. In looking through the investigator's report, Dr. Lee found something pretty important. It was part of Len Fredrickson's testimony. Hmm. His first statement was, when he went into that room, quote, It was like opening a freezer, almost. The air conditioner was on full blast, extremely cold in that room. Colder than a normal person would have ever kept their AC. So, this means that decomposition and the progress of rigor mortis was slowed. What in the trickery? What is going on here? It literally sounds like... Fake. Yeah. I don't even, it just sounds... So, like, they turned the house into, like, a freezer? Essentially, that room. Okay. Yeah. Just because that room's door was shut, and, like, it 
I guess the air, the AC was pumping so much that it just was so cold in there. It was essentially a freezer. And like, doesn't this just like sound like something you would read in like a fiction crime book and be oh, like, 100%. That, I gotta look into that because I don't think that's true. Like, yeah, I just feel like I'd be like, uh, that's not credible. Mm. But so anyway, yeah, this meant that the decomposition and the progress of rigor mortis was slowed. Um, so Ellen's murder happened earlier than originally estimated. Every indicator now pointed that the murder happened Friday night, giving Ed Sherman plenty of time to commit the crime. Oh, man. It's always the husband. It's always the husband. (laughs) It's always the husband. Ed had been wearing long pants and a turtleneck that weekend. And I know it's Connecticut, but it's August. August. So Enough said. And all of his friends were wearing short sleeves and shorts. And, like, they just, they all recall him wearing that. And they did kind of think, like, Ed, what's wrong with you? But, like, nobody really looked into it. You're not like, oh, you're wearing a turtleneck because you just killed your wife. Like, no one's, like, really (laughs) jumping to that conclusion. (laughs) So they just thought it was weird, but they didn't really think anything of it. But remember how Ellen's fingernails were damaged So now police are thinking maybe Ed had been hiding the scratches on his body from her fighting back. Her nails literally bent back. Like she... Right. She fought. There are deep marks there. Yeah. Like if he's got scratches, he would need to cover them up. He vigorously denies this, however, and insists that his wife was alive when he left. He said he even spoke to her by telephone in front of witnesses. If this is true, how can Ed be the killer? I want it so bad to be Ed, but he's making, I guess, some valid points. Right. Remember the way that, like, phones used to work when we were growing up? Like, that sounds like such a weird sentence. Oh, my God. Don't age us. Don't (laughs) age us. No, but, like, you know, you would pick up, like, your house phone, and if someone was on the other line, like... That house phone could hear them and their whole conversation. Yeah, you could totally pick up two phones you on the same line. You could so easily. And tra- I did. Yeah. Oh, I did too. <laughs> I wanted to hear my mom talking shit. Right. Oh my. I like so just got grounded just, and I'm like yeah. picking up the phone listening to my mom talking to her, her family mm. in Brazil being like, oh no, she didn't. And I'm like, mom, be cool. Be cool. Um, so Ed's friend's daughter just so happened to want to make a call at the same time that Ed was calling Ellen. She picked up the phone while he was on the other line and she said, quote, it was just ringing and ringing. And I heard him say, I love you too, but there was nobody there. Mouth ajar. Yeah. It's, I, I, what? Like when I heard that, I was like, No, she didn't. Another witness comes forward saying that she ran into Ed the morning of his sailing trip. During the conversation, Ed recommended that she watch a movie that he loved called Blackout. The movie's plot is essentially a man kills his wife and children, puts the bodies in the house, and then manipulates the crime scene in order to fool forensic scientists and mask the true time of death. So he turned the AC all the way up. Livid. Like, 
I'm livid. At this point, I'm just like, okay, even if that was a smart movie to copy, why'd you go and tell somebody to watch it? Yeah. Because if I were going to stage a crime based on a movie I've seen, I'd be like, burn all the evidence that that movie exists. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, so I'm just, at this point, it's very weird. Like, why are all of these things lining up? Like, there's no way he's innocent, right? Like... He did it. <laughs> like Ed did it. Fully Ed did this. He got inspired by a movie, recreated it, and thought yeah. he was going to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Which, like, sorry, we're lining up two cases that are inspired by movies, but I guess people are really that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> what is with that? If you haven't seen the Cassie Joe Stoddard episode, <laughs> head there now. No. Actually, finish this one first, but then, no. then go there. All right, anyway. Um, so friends go on to say that Ed displayed a morbid fascination about the details of his wife's murder. He asked Len many times if Len knew if the police determined the time of death. He also asked him if he knew how a body decomposed. Yeah, so this is, if this is true, this is all very alarming stuff. Yeah. Very suspicious behavior. Right. On top of the rigor mortis method to figure out the time of death, um, they also examined the contents of Ellen's stomach. Turns out she had eaten lunch, linguine with red clam sauce, at a local restaurant with her co-worker on Friday and took the leftovers home. Leftovers that were still in the refrigerator. Examination showed that Ellen still had the linguine in her stomach and that she did not digest much of it before she was killed. They said that it ended up being about four hours worth of digestion. Okay, so it had to have been literally that same night, obviously. Right, so like four (laughs) hours after she had lunch, which would have been before 7 p.m. So let's talk about what Ed's motive would have been. Despite what he had said about the apparent reconciliation between the two, Ellen actually wanted to pursue a divorce. Since Ellen was the majority owner of the family business, she allegedly told Ed she would leave him with almost nothing. Yeah, she would. Yeah, she's like, you can have your girlfriend and your sailboat. (laughs) And that's it. Like, she even said, like, he's never going to be a husband and the father to our children. So, he, and he's always going to have this double life, so I've got to get out. I mean, good. Right. So, while married to his wife, obviously, Ed was involved in a long and intimate relationship with another woman. Eventually, he even had a child with this other woman. So not Nancy, a completely different woman? No, Nancy. Nancy. I don't know why I'm being vague like he was. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the other woman. And you guys are like, is it Nancy Nancy? or not? (laughs) What aren't you saying? So Nancy had a kid. Yes. Jeez. Yeah, so Nancy actually had a kid about a year before Ellen got pregnant. Weirdly, it did say in some sources like that, Ed Sherman, like, always refused to have a baby with his wife, but literally they had a 12-year-old kid at this point, so I don't really know what that's about. Um, Jessica Sherman is Ellen's child, according to the Hartford Current, so. Okay. Maybe he just didn't want, like, the new responsibilities of a newborn, almost. Yeah, a newborn after having, like, a 12-year-old is big, and I guess, like, also if he has a newborn with another woman, 
but Ellen was like, listen, you're having a baby with me or you're leaving me. Like, that's yeah. kind of the deal here. So, anyway, let's get to talking about the crime. This is what detectives and forensics shows. The couple had a light dinner. Um, one source said that it was, like, cookie dough milkshakes. Like, what? I guess that's what Ed said. And okay. I'm like, that is not dinner. That is dessert. <laughs> the couple had a light dinner. Then while Ellen was changing her clothes in the bedroom, Ed strangled her to death. Forensics show that Ellen was dead before Ed wrapped the panties around her neck to make the murder look like a sex crime. Inspired by a silly movie, he turned on the AC to full blast, closed the door, and left for his trip around 7 p.m. Later that night, to cement his alibi, he staged the call to convince his friends she was still alive not knowing that his friend's daughter was on the other line. On Sunday, he calls Len to go check in on his wife, knowing that the cold temperature would slow decomposition and help his fake-ass alibi. It fooled forensic scientists, but not for long. The forensic evidence about the time of death is what the jurors said it boiled down to. Six years after his wife's death, the jury found Ed Sherman guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 50 years. He maintains his innocence and says that he does not know who killed Ellen, but that she deserved a better lifestyle than what he gave her. I mean, at least we can agree on one thing. I know. She deserves better, period, actually. Yeah, definitely. After spending only three years in prison, Ed Sherman died of a heart attack at the age of 52. That sounds like a guilty conscience. I was gonna say. <laughs> that did saying. not last long. But to conclude this episode, I feel like we should just dive into some alternate theories and some holes in this situation. Okay. Because, you know, I love to look into what other people think, and I was on Reddit a little bit more than the normal oh my. person. Okay. <laughs> I know where this is going. I mean, this case seemed like very well after hearing about the movie that he got inspired from very open and shut i'm like it's ed all the way but you know right. i'm down for some theories yeah so you know henry lee who i have said world time renowned and time again, famous influencer <laughs> in 2019 there were some allegations that henry lee is maybe not as credible as we think so some of his cases had been revisited. If you want to look into this, it is interesting. There have been like, I guess there was like some towel that he said had some evidence. In some case, there was a towel that had blood evidence on it. And then when they revisited it, there was no towel. And then, I don't know, there was controversy over that. And so Henry Lee's credibility is being called into question. I thought he was so loyal. Right. But at this point... Sherman is dead, so it's pretty much game over. Like, he could receive a posthumous pardon if the evidence warranted it, but, like, you can't really launch appeals based on a dead guy. So, like, that's just kind of, I mean, there's not really anything going to happen here, most likely. So, I'm assuming they're not looking into it anymore? I don't think so. As far as I could find, there's nothing really more than just... Yeah, this is wrapped up tightly in a nice little bow. But I think it's still fun to just talk about, you know, what went down and what could have been and whatnot. 
Um, I do want to mention, though, that the jury, I think this is cool for, you know, the time. The jury was comprised of three women and nine men. And you would think, like, an, a majority male jury at this point would have some sympathy for the man in this case, especially because he was going so hard, like, maintaining his innocence. So I do think it is cool that the men just were able to be very, like, unbiased and just look at the facts. Yeah, and just do their duty. Good. Right. So, anyway, I thought that was cool. But also, at trial, the defense tried to discount... Kristen's testimony so she's the one that overheard the sketchy call where he the daughter actually, yes um they brought up the fact that she's like legally blind without glasses to try to discount her testimony and I'm like she was listening I yeah. don't even know why that would like I feel like I would laugh out loud in court if they were like oh but aren't you legally blind I'd be like yeah but it, my ears aren't <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to tell you like what <laughs> if anything wouldn't that make her hearing even better right because, like, right? when one of your senses are and shut also, off, like, the rest of it gets heightened. You don't really need to have great hearing to know there's no one else on the other line. So, the person on Reddit that I was looking into also brought up that the leftovers were in her fridge. So, she could have eaten them at any time, even on, like, Sunday. But, like, I'm here to say that nobody chips away at leftovers like that. And yeah, like, especially, what was it, clams? Yeah, like, clams and the red sauce. Before? Like, no. I'm, but I'm sure that the scientific experts would have, like, seen the amount. Like, it's not like, okay, so if it's still in her fridge, that means she didn't finish the leftovers that she brought home, even if she ate them a second time. Who does that, A? But also, B, like, they'd be able to tell if it, like, wasn't a lot of food in her stomach versus a whole meal. So I just think that that was a little bit silly, but I thought it might be worth bringing up. Another thing is that Kristen, the girl who listened in on the phone call, her stepmother is Luann Rice, who is a murder mystery fiction novelist. Whether she was writing a book about this case was attempted to be brought up at trial, but the judge did not allow it. That is just something that I think is very interesting because um, she ended up writing a book about this case. Um, If you want to read it, it's called Last Day. It's a fiction book, and it's comprised of actually four different famous murders um, in Connecticut, or infamous, I should say. And basically, she says, like, Connecticut conjures images of grand estates, private schools, manicured hedges, cozy shoreline towns with white steeples, yacht clubs, and Wednesday night regattas. Martha Uh, Stewart has lived there, Jacqueline Bouvier went to school here, and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward raised their children here. Connecticut is also a location of vicious and bizarre murders, including the one upon which I based last day. She goes on to detail... Um, the daughter who overheard the phone, the the ringing phone while Kristen, his right? alibi. Yes. She goes on to detail that whole thing and basically talks about how Ed was a member of Mensa, the Genius Club, and the, all of this stuff and how, like, it's it's word for word what happened in the case. And I guess what people think is sketchy is that Kristen didn't really tell this witness testimony right away like i said this case it took five years before they really had all of this evidence and when they found out that the forensic evidence switched like so kristen never said anything when they thought that um ed's alibi was solid she only said it after they found out the forensic evidence of the air conditioning yeah 
So people are calling into question, like, is Kristen just saying this because her stepmother wants to make a book out of it? Or is she saying it because it's authentic? Um, I can honestly see both, which makes my head spin even more. Right. Because, like, it could just be, oh, yeah, he's called into question. I remember something weird happening that day. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? Or, hey, my mom's writing a book, so let me add in some spice. Like, I don't know. It's just, I mean, you can make your head spin for hours and hours. So the mistress, Nancy Prescott, had just given birth to Ed's child in 1984, a year before all of this happened. So honestly, it just makes me feel like he did do it even more when I think about that, though, because why would one child of his be more important than another? Like, I find it hard to believe that he would just be like committing to leaving this one baby for a new baby. Yeah, like it's I, very I feel weird. like he would be so angry and torn to the to the fact that he would be like, I don't want to leave my new infant, and maybe I'll kill you so you don't have to make me choose. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. And sort of like quote unquote get rid of the problem. Right. Almost. Nancy went to the trial to be supportive of Jessica Sherman, the daughter of Ed and Ellen, and oh. I guess. Jessica had been living with Nancy shortly before the trial, like, while everything was going down with her dad. Um, Jessica testified at the trial, even though she was at camp during the murder. So I think she must have just, like, been a character witness. And she was really supportive of her father and lived with him up until his incarceration. So I just think that that's worth mentioning because, you know, as a daughter, you know your dad. Mm -hmm. Or you think you do. And you just want to go hard for them like that's my dad you're not telling me otherwise right and she must feel torn like she wants justice for her mom but she must really believe heavily that it is not her dad yeah so i just thought that's worth mentioning but you know as it went down ed is guilty of this murder and that is that in the eyes of the state thanks for listening you can follow us on instagram at the chalkline pod twitter at the chalkline pod And be sure to check out our website. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story.